0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, what are you doing next Saturday morning? You want to watch me host a game show while we all support the fight against cancer? Join Livestream for the Cure, May 19th through 21st, as dozens of your favorite podcasters live stream their shows and special segments, like, for example, a game show, to see if we can beat last year's record amount raised for cancer research. And you don't have to wait for the event to donate. You can donate right now. Get all the information you need at livestreamforthecure.com. The following is an Airwaves Media Podcast. Buckle your swashes, jolly up your Rogers, let's jump right back into it for the Unplanned Part 2 on Pirates and the Age of Sail. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. Leaving aside injuries and the utter lack of hygiene on a ship at sea, which is a lot to ignore, I'll mark you, what was the greatest single threat to the health of sailors on a long voyage? If you said scurvy, you're dead on. Grab an orange and I'll tell you all about it. Between Columbus's transatlantic voyage and the adoption of steam engines, scurvy killed more than two million sailors. For a sense of scale, the plague of man upon the earth didn't hit one billion members until 1804, so two million people, even across a few centuries, is a lot of people. Ship owners and military leaders would plan to lose half of the men they set out with for any major voyage, purely to scurvy. Scurvy, as you probably know, is a disease caused by a lack of vitamin C. Hardly rare in our lives, vitamin C is in everything from citrus fruit, its most common association, leafy greens and peppers, to the livers of Arctic animals. That fact, had they known it, would have really saved the bacon of Arctic explorers like Shackleton, whose last expedition is thought to have been crippled by scurvy. The ubiquity of vitamin C is practically wasted, though, since most animals can produce their own vitamin C internally and don't need to get it from their diet. Only guinea pigs, fruit bats, some of the great apes, and the greatest ape of all, according to them, us, are unable to make vitamin C in-house. The main reason this is bad news bears is that vitamin C is needed to produce and maintain collagen. Collagen is to our bodies what hot glue and gaffer tape are to most of my projects. It's what's holding us together. Without it, prepare to have no strength or energy. You bruise and bleed easily with wounds that refuse to heal. Your gums, in particular, bleed and your teeth can fall out. Plus, you'll be treated to terrible, unrelenting joint pain. But the most metal symptom of all. Without collagen, old wounds reopen. And when I say old wounds, I mean scars you've had for years. Look at a scar. We've all got them. They're like tattoos with better backstories. Now, imagine if something brushed across that old scar and it suddenly reopened. That's what happened to the young doctor who proved the causative link between vitamin C and scurvy in 1940. Hold up, you say, 1940? People have known about citrus fruit preventing scurvy since Bodhi times, even if they didn't know why. That's true in both parts. They knew it, but they didn't understand it. Vitamin C didn't even have a name until the 1930s, when Albert Szent-Györgyi discovered the chemical ascorbic acid, a foundational discovery for modern nutrition. Pretty well everyone accepted that citrus prevented scurvy, but what good is knowing something if you don't have duplicable science to prove it? James Lind, a Scottish doctor with the British Royal Navy, performed what is widely considered the first randomized controlled clinical trial in 1747 and discovered that yes, you can prevent scurvy with lemons. So the British Navy gave their men lemons, which they sourced from Sicily, until they switched over to limes from the West Indies because empire. That's how British sailors and later Brits as a lump picked up the sober cat Now, limes have markedly less vitamin C than lemons do, but they didn't know that and wouldn't really need to as it turns out. By the by, if you've ever pondered how you would have solved the need for perishable fruits and vegetables to tackle scurvy and your solution was something like lemon drop candy or some damn good marmalade, which were my thoughts on the matter, I'm afraid those wouldn't work. Both of them require high heat to make, Marmalade and jams and things are technically a kind of candy. And that heat destroys the vitamin C. Now, just because neither the disease process nor the cure were understood didn't portend tragedy for sailors. While vitamin C being water-soluble leaves your system quite quickly, you might not see a symptom of scurvy for up to three months. You can go about your business for a fiscal quarter before the tiredness and other unfortunate symptoms can set in. This was borne out within my sphere in modern times by a guy I know's guy I know who wanted to save as much money as possible during summer break in college, so he ate nothing but ramen. Like, literally nothing but ramen. All three meals every day. Before the fall semester rolled around, guess who's at the doctor being diagnosed with scurvy? According to said doctor, Mixing in a fast-food ketchup packet every now and then would have been enough to keep him from his lethargic, bloody state. Now, across time, there have been those who thought it was simply being away from land for too long that caused seamen to go all incredible melting man all over the decks. Captain Thomas Melville, for example, brought coffin-sized crates of earth on voyages. When men under his command started showing signs of scurvy, he would earth them. They'd be partially buried in a box of soil until they were cured. And it worked. Because the sailors getting the earthing treatment were also fed extra vegetables compared to their mates, thus giving them the vitamin C they needed to actually cure the scurvy. That long onset was one of the things that confused and slowed down the realization of what was going on and why. When sail gave way to steam, you'd be much less likely to be out on the water not stopping for groceries for months on end. So now it didn't matter so much that the British Navy had switched to the less effective limes. The lads wouldn't be gone long enough for it to matter looking into the particulars wasn't a priority for many at that point. But enter John Crandon, Harvard surgeon. In 1939, he decided to set the question to bed for good, using himself as a test subject for a variety of reasons. And if you like that sort of thing, definitely check out our episode, Physician Test Thyself from 2019, as well as the chapter about it in the Your Brain on Facts book. Crandon eliminated all vitamin C from his diet living on eggs, cheese, bread, butter, chocolate, and coffee, a diet I am officially signing up for. After about four and a half months, Crandon developed hyperkeratotic papules on his butt, sort of dark, raised spots. At month five, he started bleeding around the hair follicles on his legs. He had so little energy Because vitamin C is also key in helping your body to process carbs, fats, and proteins, he could only walk about 50 meters at a time before becoming too exhausted. At six months, colleagues assisting him made an incision to see how it would heal. Spoiler alert, it didn't. Those same colleagues bailed on the plan completely and staged an intervention after Crandon's 15-year-old appendectomy scar opened up. They started giving him intravenous vitamin C, and as one author put it, he was "...restored to life almost at once." Interestingly, and thank God for small miracles, for whatever reason, Crandon was spared the most cliché of scurvy symptoms, the bleeding gums and shedding teeth. You know what can be particularly tricky to navigate? Doing segues. I don't have one for this section. So I'll jump right in and thank all the fine folks who take the time to review the Your Brain on Facts podcast or book. This latest podcast review comes from via Cauliflower via Podchaser.com, who says... Wybop has been an utterly and uniquely binge-worthy experience. In fact, it is the only podcast I listen to, and not for lack of trying. Her topics are well researched, have a wonderful, subtle humor, and are spoken with a voice that is easy to listen to. Definitely worth a listen to anyone who loves trivia. Thank you so much, Melancholy Flower. And yes, if you want to hear your opinion read out to thousands of people, leave a review for the show or drop me a message on social media, Facebook and Instagram, your Brain on Facts, Twitter, Brain on Facts pod, TikTok, Moxie Labouche, where I live stream a portion of the recording of the podcast. When do I do that? I have no freaking clue. It's whenever I get the script finished. While you have your phone in your hand or are on your computer, you can head to yourbrainonfacts.com merch to buy a Russian Warship Go F Yourself t-shirt, raising money for Ukraine Red Cross. You can hang out with your fellow brainiacs at our Facebook group or our subreddit, both of which you can reach through yourbrainonfacts.com social. Or you can support the show financially, Coffee or Ko-Fi, I'll be honest, I still don't know which pronunciation the rest of the world is using. KO-FI.com slash your brain on facts for a one-time financial donation, or our Patreon, patreon.com slash your brain on facts, where everyone just got a bonus mini episode on the original, terrible names of some of your favorite bands. Every single thing on earth is interesting if you just take the time to look at it. That's the philosophy I didn't even realize I'd had my whole life until I started doing this podcast four years and 195 episodes ago. And I hope I've proved it to be true, doing episodes on things like mud and salt just to challenge myself. And sure enough, every time I do one of those invariably, I find more interesting facts than I can possibly use. So here's a little mini-one of those, a subject whose very name evokes listless and inescapable boredom. The doldrums. Within five degrees of the equator on either side, the doldrums are a bit of ocean where there is little to no wind. The bright tropical sun on the open ocean causes the air to warm and rise straight up, rather than blowing horizontally, as it does when the sun warms air over sea and land simultaneously. Now these days, that's not a really big deal, but before the Industrial Revolution and internal combustion engines, what were you going to do when there was no wind? Hang off the back of the boat and kick your feet? It's actually two big winds that cause little or no wind at all to happen. The doldrums, or to give them their proper name, the Intertropical Convergence Zone, also used to be called the Intertropical Front, is where two sets of trade winds meet. Okay, now what's a trade wind? Trade winds are consistent currents of air blowing east to west near the equator. Think of it like a little jet stream, but down near the water. Sailors would plan their voyages to take advantage of trade winds. And since most ships on the ocean carried cargo for business purposes, boom, trade winds. But if trade winds collide under the oppressive sun, they can cancel each other out. And instead of two big winds, you have no wind at all. It's kind of like running out of gas on the side of a lonely highway in the middle of West Texas. Being forsaken by the wind wasn't merely an inconvenience to your shipping schedule. The windlessness can last for weeks at a time. If your ship is already low on supplies and you come to a dead stop, well, let's say that that may have been both a poor and apt choice of words. Scurvy, dehydration, starvation, delirium, and cabin fever wait in the wings like extras who finally got a speaking part and there will be no fun musical numbers like in Muppet Treasure Island. Because having one major problem is never enough, the wind can come back, in force. One minute you're wondering if your sails will ever billow again, which sounds like an artful euphemism for something, though I know not what. The next moment you're being battered by a violent, lightning-filled storm. Just can't win for losing. Okay, but Once people knew what and where the doldrums were, why not just avoid them? Arrange your business to keep your ships out of there. Because the doldrums move. The actual location of the ITCZ gradually varies with the seasons based on subtle changes in conditions. Sometimes a double doldrum forms, with one located north and the other just south of the equator steering wide is not a safe bet because the doldrums have some nasty neighbors, the Horse Latitudes. The accepted history of the name comes from Spanish ships transporting horses to their colonies in the New World. They would run out of wind for so long, they would run out of water for their cargo of horses, leading to many of them dying and, well, let's call it, being buried at sea. And to think, the doldrums is what my mom called it when we were bored on rainy days during summer vacation. Maybe that's why my family had cable.
1: Not a year goes by that I don't hear about someone that I'm close to battling against cancer. Hello, everyone. My name is Nick, and I'm the host of the annual live stream for The Cure, a charity event going into its sixth year to help raise money for the Cancer Research Institute to fight for a future immune to cancer. This year, we're aiming for $20,000 starting on the 19th of May. We'll be live for over 45 hours with amazing content from people all over the world. It's going to be such a wonderful time. Please mark your calendars and please help us spread the word. The only way we can reach more people is with your likes your shares, your comments, your engagement, whenever and wherever you see the event online. Together, we truly can make a difference. Let's fight together for a future where we don't have to hear stories about loved ones, family, and friends battling against cancer. Please join us May 19th in our fight for hope. And now a word from our sponsors. The sleep podcast that consists of spoken word hypnosis, meditation and stories. So if you want to listen to a beautiful soundscape tonight, search for Calm Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see how we're helping millions of people relax and go to sleep every night. Edgewater Hospital was once Chicago's finest until a new owner took over in the
0: 1990s. There were some serious fraudulent things going on. There are some people they're putting in the hospital that aren't sick that have never been sick.
1: They were preying upon elderly, frail, poor people. The insurance fraud scheme turned the hospital into a butcher shop. People had these incredibly complicated invasive procedures done to them inside. It's tragic what happened. The complete series of If the Walls Could Talk is now available.
0: There were lots of reasons why people would visit the piracy booth at Career Day. Some wanted fame and glory, sure since a lot of people on land saw pirates as anti-hero Robin Hood rock star types. Many were sailors who were press-ganged into their nation's navy or onto a private ship. And of course, there were many who escaped bondage to find a home among the outlaws. Outlaw, by the way, doesn't refer to the fact that you commit unlawful acts, but that because of being a criminal, you have been put outside of the protection of the law. For one aspiring buccaneer, however, his foray into piracy seems, for all intents and purposes, to have been a midlife crisis. Yes, I'm finally getting to the topic that started this whole thing. If you haven't already watched the streaming series Our Flag Means Death, first off, do so immediately, allow me to introduce you to the gentleman pirate, Steed Bonnet. It sounds like Steve, but with a delta instead of a victor. Bonnet had been born into a life of privileged luxury on a thriving sugar plantation on Barbados. So yes, he was a slave owner, and I'm not sure what to do with that information other than acknowledge it. There's a contingent of people mad at this popular show for aggrandizing a man who participated in and benefited from human bondage, and I totally understand that. But at the same time, Our Flag Means Death is about as historically accurate as Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter, so it's not really even about the actual Steed Bonnet. And I reckon the real Steed Bonnet would take a dim view to Episode 9. If you know, you know. Bonnet married well, fathered four children, and was a respected member of Barbadian High Society, becoming a major in the militia and a justice of the peace. But all that somehow failed to hold his interest. Maybe he had the wanderlust. Maybe he had discomfort in a married state. Who knows? What we do know is that in 1717, he set out to be a pirate on a ship he'd commission, rather than stole like a real proper pirate, called the Revenge, which might sound cool, but was a dead common name for ships at the time. The ship had typical pirate paraphernalia, like a dozen cannons, included many creature comforts from his old life, including a full library in his quarters. Equally unusual was the way he paid his crew. Rather than getting a cut of any spoils, his crew got a salary, which was an exceedingly rare practice. This was a clever move on Bonnet's part, though I don't know if it was deliberate cleverness or accidental because he just didn't know you're not supposed to pay them up front. Steed Bonnet knew nothing about sailing or captaining, let alone piracy. He'd been on a boat once before as a passenger, but that was about it. Things went about as well as you'd expect with a hobbyist dandy at the helm. Had his crew been on the usual even-split arrangement, a lot like being a commission-only salesperson, they'd have mutinied within a month. It was the skill and experience of the crew that did see them take some vessels successfully. Ships sailing out of Barbados would be put to the torch so they couldn't carry word of Bonnet back home, even though he was sailing under the alias Captain Edwards. Speaking of Edwards, one of Bonnet's chief claims to fame, and likely the reason he's remembered as much as he is, was the time he spent with Edward Teach, aka Blackbeard. When they met, Blackbeard was still establishing himself, freshly emerged from under the command of his mentor, Captain Hornigold, and was not yet a legend in his own time. Let's look at Blackbeard real quick and see if we can sort the sardines from the Pilchards, the truth from the myth. Blackbeard may stand today as the most famous pirate in history, but he wasn't the most successful. He wasn't even the most successful at the time he was sailing. He did all right for himself, but couldn't hold a candle to Bartholomew Black Bart Roberts, who captured hundreds of vessels and operated a large fleet of pirate ships. Neither was Blackbeard flawlessly skilled at the trade. He once ran the Queen Anne's Revenge aground on a sandbar off the North Carolina coast, damaging her so badly she was no longer seaworthy. What kind of idiot runs his ship aground? That was near the end of Blackbeard's pirate career, mid-1718. He tried taking it as a sign that maybe he was meant to retire in land for a while, but that didn't last long. Much of Edward Teach's early life and background has been lost to history. He was just one of many poor lads born in Bristol. We do know that around 1717, Teach captured a French merchant vessel that he renamed the Queen Anne's Revenge and began adding ships to his fleet, establishing a formidable reputation, and forming alliances with other captains. Within the span of only a year or so, he went from a nothing, a nobody, to lord of the sea. Although Blackbeard cultivated a reputation of being a ruthless killer, there's no evidence that he himself ever killed anyone. Even when he took prisoners, he treated them decently. The rumors and legends about Blackbeard were far better than reality could ever be. He was seven feet tall, with a head made of black smoke and glowing, floating red eyes. That would be so cool. The smoke thing was real, albeit exaggerated. Blackbeard would put cannon fuses into his black beard and light them on fire as he boarded the ship. This gave him a fearsome, demonic, pantaloon-soiling appearance. Remember, branding was a big deal for pirates, striking fear into the hearts of your victims and enemies so they give up with as little fight as possible. Blackbeard and Steed Bonnet's meet-cute happened while Bonnet was recovering from a wound he received when he ordered his man to attack what he thought was a merchant vessel that turned out to belong to the Spanish Navy because he was so bad at pirating he couldn't tell the difference. Blackbeard took a liking to Bonnet, possibly because Bonnet was a novelty, walking around his ship in a silk dressing gown and a rank amateur who had no business being a pirate. Blackbeard tricked, cajoled, or sweet-talked Bonnet into being his guest aboard the Queen Anne's Revenge in exchange for control of Bonnet's ship revenge for a couple of weeks. The two sailed together for a while, as Blackbeard built his fleet up to five ships. That fall, King George declared that any pirate who wanted to stop attacking his ships and just attack the Spanish, England's principal antagonist at the time, would get a full pardon for their piracy under what was called his Act of Grace. Blackbeard announced he wanted to take up the offer and took his fleet to North Carolina. Not one to let his new bestie run off without him, Bonnet decided he'd take it up too, two acts of grace, please, and went ashore to sign the paperwork. When he came back to the revenge, though, he found it had been stripped of everything of value, save a little bit of water and ship's biscuits, as well as his crew of 25 who had been marooned on a small island. Blackbeard hadn't signed the act of grace, either. Have you ever had a supposedly close friend suddenly turn into a gaping ass without warning and for no good reason? Definitely happened to me. For most of us, it happens while we're still in school, not when we have cannons and warriors at our disposal. This betrayal flipped a switch in Bonnet, and he had a new goal in his five-year plan. Hunt down Blackbeard. The gentleman pirate, not only immediately resumed gentlemanly pirating, which did not sit well with the crown, but he did so with shocking brutality, abusing his crew, killing prisoners, you know, the huge. Bonnet was one of the few pirates to have actually made people walk the plank, a pirate cliche about as historically accurate as peg legs and everybody having a West Country accent. Check out last week's episode for more on that. You can count on one hand the number of verifiable instances of walking the plank as a means of punishment or execution. The first documented use of the phrase dates to 1769, when Seaman George Wood confessed to a chaplain that he had made several men walk the plank. There is evidence of his confession, but no actual evidence of the plank walking. Authors like Robert Louis Stevenson and Charles Elms got a hold of the phrase and cemented it into the zeitgeist, leaving us all thinking that walking the plank was de rigueur. In August of 1718, Bonnet was cornered by ships sent after him by the governor of South Carolina at the mouth of the Cape Fear River. And though he swore he'd blow himself and the ship up before he surrendered, his men overruled him and gave themselves up as prisoners. Once in custody, Bonnet pled for mercy and blamed everything on Blackbeard, but it didn't work. Steed Bonnet, the Gentleman Pirate, was hanged on December 10, 1718 after less than two years on the high seas. As for Blackbeard, he'd met his own bloody end in a battle with the British Navy a month earlier. His head was cut off to collect the bounty much easier to carry a 10-pound head than a, say, 180-pound body, and his corpse was tossed overboard. This gave rise to the most bizarre legend about Blackbeard, that his decapitated body, sporting three bullet wounds and two dozen lacerations, that part is true, swam three times around the ship before either sinking or swimming away, depending on who's telling the story. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. I didn't have a header, so I don't have a footer. But as always, thank everyone so much for listening. Thank you for coming down these various rabbit holes with me. I don't always know where the research is going to lead. Sometimes I think there must be a wealth of information about a topic, and I get there, and there's nothing. Sometimes I think, this will be just a half hour's worth, and my God, I could do an entire podcast series on it. Just one of the mixed blessings of doing a podcast. Remember, you can always find the script for the show and the source links at yourbrainonfacts.com. This show is a part of the Airwave Media Network, alongside such other fabulous shows as The History of the Great War, Into the Impossible, and Monster Talk. See all the shows at airwavemedia.com. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and stay safe.